When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. Now, President Biden is responding this evening to the discovery of at least 10 classified documents in his former private office. People know I take classified uh, documents and classified information seriously. I was briefed about this discovery and surprised to learn that there were any government records that were taken there to that office. But I don't know what's in the documents. I've, my lawyers have not suggested I ask what documents they were. I've turned over the boxes. They've turned over the boxes to the archives. And we're cooperating fully, cooperating fully with the review, and which I hope will be finished soon. Well, the documents were discovered on, wait for it, November 2nd from Joe Biden's time as vice president, including, and they include U.S. intelligence memos and briefing materials about Ukraine and Iran and the U.K. We're learning exclusively at CNN that a couple of days later, Biden's lawyers handed over everything in the office, some 50 or 55 boxes out of an abundance of caution. And here we go. The House Oversight Chairman has already sent letters to the White House Counsel's Office and the National Archives in the opening salvo of congressional investigations into Biden's handling of those documents. Now, the DOJ already has its hands full with two very different document cases. And what happens next will all come down to how those cases diverged after the documents were discovered to be in the possession of something other than the National Archives. At least 10 classified docs found in President Biden's private office in downtown Washington. At least 325 classified documents found in former President Trump's beach club at Mar-a-Lago. Now, some of the, those 10 or so Biden documents, they were marked top secret. 60 Trump documents were marked top secret. Now, of course, the idea of how many were there at times, if it's intentional and if it's Serious enough, just one document is problematic. So don't be swayed by the number alone. But Team Biden, the words you heard from was cooperation. They are cooperating with the National Archives and the DOJ. Now, Trump, he is under investigation for obstruction. President Biden's lawyers found his documents and immediately notified the National Archives. But the archives had to reach out to Team Trump and ask for his documents. And the DOJ doesn't think it's got all the Trump documents, even as we're sitting here today. And sitting with me here tonight is CNN's Phil Mattingly, also retired senior CIA operations officer Douglas London, author of the great new book, The Recruiter. It's up out in paperback as we speak. Also, national security attorney Bradley Moss and CNN's MJ Lee, who's been covering the president while in Mexico City. I'm glad that you're all here right now. Let me begin with you, MJ, because you are where really the action is for the president of the United States. And of course, what's on everyone's mind is the dates here. We're not just finding out that the president has just found out. Why, why did they not allow people to know or tell this earlier? 
Yeah, you know, Laura, as much as we just heard the president address this issue for the very first time at this press conference in Mexico City, uh, that is the one question that he really didn't answer. And it is a question that the White House isn't answering either. The question being, uh, if the Trump, if the Biden team, excuse me, knew and found these classified documents at a private office where they clearly shouldn't have been going back to November, uh, why are we only learning about this now? And earlier today, you know, when we were asking the White House about this, uh, White House Counsel Office spokesperson uh, said they're just limited right now in what exactly they can share. Uh, the spokesperson also uh, said that they are committed to doing things the right way, and maybe at some point in the future they will be able to share more uh, information. But uh, right now, as things stand, it's just not clear uh, why that decision was made, sort of what went into that thought process, and exactly who might have been involved. Uh, you know, this summit, uh, the North American, American Leader Summit that took place right behind us, is now over, and Air Force One is headed back to Washington. But this issue is clearly waiting for the president back at home. And uh, as you laid out in your intro there, just the uh, real distinctions between uh, sort of the Biden document situation and the Trump docs, and certainly the White House is trying to make clear that those distinctions are real. Uh, we've seen over the last 48 hours how uh, many Republicans and Trump allies definitely don't care about those distinctions. You know, it's a really important point. I want to go to you, Bradley, on this. Bradley Moss is a national security attorney and have dealt with classified documents throughout your career. And, of course, I'm wondering, and as much as we talk about, there are some distinctions. Obviously, we've laid out the distinctions. MJ makes a fine point about whether that nuance will ever be appreciated and the difference without distinction. But I do wonder from your perspective, are there red flags here that people are missing? Do you feel skeptical about the president's response or when they knew? No, you know, basically, you know, two roads diverged in a wood here, and Joe Biden took the path you're supposed to take. He did what you're supposed to do when you find out that for whatever reason, whether it was incompetence, sloppiness, ignorance, whatever, classified records or documents with classification markings wound up in your possession. You notify the government, you get it returned to them immediately. That is, according to what we know from the media reporting and what the White House counsel said, is what happened. I want to still see what comes out more details-wise. I'm not just taking their word for it. But if that is what transpired here, then in terms of at least Joe Biden, he's in the clear. He did what you're supposed to do. Donald Trump is the case study in how to get yourself into more trouble when you didn't have to be and how to tick off the Justice Department. Well, Doug, on that point, the idea of when you're thinking about not taking one's word for it, spoken like a true lawyer, like I'm not going to take your word for it. It's the whole trust and verify yes. or just not trust you at all moment. But I wonder, I mean, if you're looking at this and you're trying to think about how to evaluate and assess one's accountability or to trust somebody, he could easily say, I didn't know. And some talking points are already saying, well, isn't that what Trump would say? And why is this so different? How do you see it? Well, from a counterintelligence perspective, Laura, you're looking at the material itself, control, and intent. Intent may be speaking to the accountability factor. In terms of the material, there may be 10 documents, some of it special access programs, but they're finished products which offer clues but not sources and methods. When you compare that against what President Trump held, 60-some-odd top-secret documents, there's a, a lot more clues there. In terms of control, these were locked in an office that perhaps only Biden and his team had access to, where with Mar-a-Lago, this was a common storage space with boxes that common workers could have access to. In terms of intent, as you've explained, President Trump perhaps might find himself charged with obstruction because he went out of his way to prevent these documents from being retained, which means he had an end game. It could very possibly be the actions of President Biden's staff, but he seems to say 
He doesn't know about it. Either way, the numbers themselves, the metrics and the clinical evaluation makes it less of a potential hazard for sources and methods as what we saw in Mar-a-Lago. And of course, Phil, thinking about this, I mean, there is the divergent paths taken. There is the idea of what one knows when you are aware of it. But that awareness factor, I mean, we're talking about it was known in November. Um, it's January. I know it, last week was an entire year, but it is technically still January. And it's not November by age of imagination. What do you make of the idea that there, we didn't know about this sooner? I mean, th- w- this was a, a hell of a timeline. Yeah, look, as a reporter, I, I'm not thrilled by it, but I've also spent the last 24 to 36 hours making calls about this and not being thrilled about the general lack of answers. But to some degree, I think that underscores the approach that the White House and their team have taken. It is not satisfying from an informational perspective or from a journalistic perspective, but it also very much tracks with the caution that they've operated through with, uh, with throughout this entire process. And I think part of what we're seeing right now, a lot of the issues you laid out, who had access to it, where they came from, what the process was, That's part of the review. That's what they expect the U.S. attorney is looking into as he uh, presents his information to the attorney general. And he already gave a preliminary report. Already a preliminary report. You don't expect any more uh, coming out of that, which means a decision may be coming soon. Look, the worst case scenario out of this, not the politics of it, not whatever House Republicans are going to do. The worst case scenario is that the attorney general decides this is suspect enough to try and appoint a special counsel. That is a nightmare for any White House. And that is certainly something this administration is cognizant of and wants to avoid because, at least according to them, they don't believe they've done anything to merit that. That drives the caution both on the timeline of things, willingness to talk about this, and just how few details they've been willing to let out up to this point. The one thing, however, they have made clear of, and it's been implicit, but it's pretty blatant, if you look at the special counsel's statement or the White House counsel's statement from last night, if you listen to the president today, they're drawing a very significant contrast from the former president. That's not unintentional. They're doing that. With the little information they're giving, they're making clear this is a very different scenario. That's an understanding of the politics, even with the restrictions they feel like they have on them right now. MJ, we bring you back into the conversation here because I wonder what, I mean, this was, this is really taken center stage. And of course, Biden, Trudeau, and everyone wanted this to have a different vibe today, to say the least. What is the atmosphere like there, even having to address this? I mean, many people were were surprised President Biden didn't just punt and say, this is not why I'm here. We'll talk about this back in Washington, D.C. In some respects, it speaks to the idea, I think we lost her for a second, it speaks to the urgency of how he knew that this was. Let me go to you, Bradley, um, on this, because I wonder about the timing issue. The fact has already been somebody to look at this somebody who is a Trump, a Trump appointee, a U.S. attorney out of Illinois. Um, the fact that there's already been a preliminary report handed over, what does that signal to you about either the pace of the investigation or how this might end up? Shows me that it's running by the proper course, that it was turned over, when everything was turned over back in November to NARA, they quickly sent it to DOJ. It wasn't like what we know with the Trump team, where they dragged that out for months, fighting about executive privilege with NARA. DOJ got the records. They had no you know, problems getting information out of whoever they needed it from. They're being able to interview people if they need it. They're being able to get an understanding of what's transpired. You if, mean to have that report, interviews have been done, maybe yes. even lawyers for Biden. Quite, uh, quite possibly. We already know the, the president has his personal lawyers. So if there are, in fact, lawyers being involved, the fact that journalists haven't found out about it kind of disappointing. But that wow. it would... <laughs> 
I mean, hey, you, you brought that up. There was, there was no, that wasn't shade. That was just a little was, bit of a moment. A cloud. Work a harder, cloud. Phil. I get it. I hear it from my bosses every day. Sure. But that, a, a minor but, cloud. But that does show that this is going by the pace that for something like this, it's supposed to. The reason it's taken so long in Mar-a-Lago was because of all the obfuscation and the obstruction. They made it take longer and they put up those roadblocks. So what about... Attorney General Garland, though, I mean, he has a bit of a dilemma on his hands. You hear the um, the criticism coming out right now from anywhere from the former vice president, Mike Pence, to Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are expressing, look, there might be a double standard unless there is a protocol that's followed precisely in the same way it happened for Trump, even with those divergent paths. Attorney General Garland has to really rely on these reports, but also has a political and legal calculus. What do you think? Well, to avoid that double standard, at some point, the intelligence community probably has to get involved to take a look. Is there any damage to do an assessment? And because of chain of evidence, as you know far better than me, they would have to depend on justice to let them know, to provide the subject lines, the serial numbers of those reports, that they could then take people offline and see, have we seen anything? And again, this intelligence reporting has to predate 2017 because it's Obama-era material. So some of it might be already overtaken by events. And certainly there would be an opportunity that had damage been done, had these documents out of control fallen into bad hands, by now we would certainly see indications for the sources and methods that were involved in collecting the material used in those assessments. Real quick, is it a, is it a good thing as lawyers told him not to ask what documents there were? Yes. He doesn't want me have any need to know. Do not talk to him about it. Don't ask about it. There you go, Phil. That's why they didn't tell you. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Which, by the way, we reported that before. There you go. Oh, see how I would, that no, happened? No, I will say one, one final thing. I know, I know we're on the, the clock here. That has been an interesting element of this. It's not just the president. Most of the people on his team also don't have a great sense. They certainly haven't reviewed it in the council office or in his broader senior advisors. Um, And that has complicated their response as well. They don't know. They have a broad sense of things just based on the fact a review has been ongoing, that some of their personal lawyers have been involved as well. Uh, But that complicates the ability to get information out. But to Bradley's point, there's a reason the president doesn't know about this. That is also not unintentional. Fine point from Phil Madley and all of you. Stick around, please. The lawmaker caught in multiple lies being sworn in. That's up next. And, of course, now his fellow members of Congress are asking, should George Santos really be entrusted with classified information? I'll speak with a Democrat who's demanding McCarthy block Santos's access to that information. Next. Well, everyone, there was a party line vote today in the House establishing a committee that Republicans say will investigate what they call the weaponization of the federal government. And it's one of the first acts of the speaker, Kevin McCarthy-led House, as we get a clearer picture of what comes next for House Republicans after the brutal speakership battle. Joining me now to discuss, former GOP congressman and CNN senior political commentator, Adam Kinzinger. Nice to see you today, Adam. You know, it's interesting um, first of all, most people saw that screen flash for a moment and had a bit of like a deja vu and thought, oh, no, are we back here again at a long speakership vote? It's not that. But this was tr- truly a test today. Before we get into that, though, I'm really curious to hear your take on the news of the day. President Biden speaking and addressing from Mexico City that there were classified documents found in a private office. He has not asked his lawyers about what's in it. They handed it over immediately, apparently, to the archives. And there has already been some preliminary report handed over to the Attorney General Merrick Garland from a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney who was a holdover in Illinois. What's your take on this? 
Well, first off, the U.S. attorney is a great guy. I know him. He's fair. So I trust what will be in that report. I think in any other time, this would be a news item. But obviously, given what had happened with the former president, it's huge. The, you know, Thankfully, in the justice area, they do nuance. And there's a lot of nuance differences here, including just, you know, yeah, there was classified information. But what was the reaction after that was found out? Politics-wise, they don't, nuance isn't done very well in this. So from an ammunition perspective, from a difficulty now in prosecuting Trump, I don't think it's going to make a difference in what the Justice Department does, but it certainly gives ammunition to the Republicans to say uh, that you're targeting uh, President Trump, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. Of course, interestingly enough, if you were to look at it and you're a Republican congressman who's attempting to do what you're talking about um, – then if you are condemning more broadly the idea of the possession of classified materials for a former executive office holder, then you necessarily have to then condemn the former president, Donald Trump. But that nuance won't apparently be there. I mean, hypocrisy really is something that seems to be part and parcel as well, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, uh, everybody can agree that the possession of classified material is wrong. It shouldn't happen. Um, what you're going to see from my former colleagues on the Republican side is a lot of attacking President Biden, saying he should be in jail and ignoring what Donald Trump did. And the, I heard it yesterday and somebody saying basically, look, he was vice president at the time. He shouldn't have had access to this material, which is patently false. Uh, but there's no excuse for either side on this. But I do think former President Trump has a much different case. And again, justice will do nuance. They do nuance far better than politicians do. I mean, the law is about the behavior in part. But let's talk about part of this, because as I mentioned at the top, Republicans did create a new select committee today to investigate what they're calling and the weaponization of the DOJ and the FBI. And I'm wondering what this is going to mean for the administration and also for the public's perception of the credibility of the DOJ more broadly. I think we're in a moment where people already have their minds made up. I'm not sure this is going to change anybody's mind. I guess what I'm confused about generally is there's an oversight committee. The oversight committee is the ones that are supposed to be dealing with this. So that's what's ominous about creating a whole new committee that says, you know, anybody that's under investigation, now we're going to go after the investigators. Mm -hmm. I worry about any kind of a chilling effect this puts on the execution of justice. You know, are we targeting individuals now who are out doing their job? If there's, if you believe that there is corruption, for instance, in the DOJ or in, in government agencies, that's what the oversight committee is for. This seems like an extra layer. But what I'm worried about is this actually seems like something akin to McCarthyism in the 50s, not Kevin McCarthy, um, in terms of who are we going to target? Who are we going to put out in front of us? and embarrassing people for doing their job. Well, when you start to investigate the investigations and the investigators, a lot of legislation is also not happening, to your larger point. But speaking of committees and about how the oversight is done, um, Speaker McCarthy was promising Democratic reps Schiff and Swalwell and Ilhan Omar that they will not be on the committees that they served on previously. And we already know we've come to think about even in the campaign platforms and looking ahead to even November, let alone beyond, there were conversations about what would happen if Republicans became the majority and the tit for tat of removal from committees, as we saw for other reasons by Democrats as well. Um, Swalwell was reacting to that 
today as payback. Listen to this. Their plan is to take me, Adam Schiff, and Ilhan Omar off the committees and put George Santos, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Paul Gosar back on committees. I, I think you see that that is a uh, uneven, uh, vengeful approach. They can try and do what they want to do, but I think the voters see that uh, this is nothing more than uh, one side trying to take the best of the other side off the field uh, in a very vengeful way. How do you see it? Look, it's a really dangerous slippery slope we're on here. Let's let's go back in time to why Marjorie Taylor Greene and why Paul Gosar were pulled off of their committees. By the way, I voted for both of them to be pulled off of their committees. If you go even further back, Kevin McCarthy had pulled Steve King for some white supremacist comments off of his committees. He was asked if he could do the same for Marjorie Taylor Greene for denying school shootings, the whole Jewish space laser, all those conspiracies. He refused because that was politically tough at the time. Same with Paul Gosar who addressed a white supremacist conference. When he refused to do that, then the House took it up. We took it up because of a legitimate reason and it was a bipartisan vote. What's being done now is retribution and payback. And listen, we start getting into this tit-for-tat retribution and payback. This house, as dysfunctional as it is now, will continue to be even more dysfunctional. It's very scary where this is tracking, I think, at the moment. Real quick, we think about the idea of you're talking oversight and what we're watching. I do wonder what you make of the C-SPAN video cameras. There's an amendment now from Congressman Matt Gates to have them up. Just speaking about how people are watching what's happening, is there some incentive if the cameras are on or if this amendment were to pass for some reason that you think would be greater responsibility or accountability you would see from people knowing that the big brother is watching? Well, let me just give you my personal opinion. You know, either way this goes, I don't think it's going to be a massive deal. Of course, Matt Gates wants that free so he can go out and perform on the floor anytime he can to get on TV. But listen, um, what I worry about right now, anytime anybody speaks in a committee or on the floor of the House of Representatives, all they think about is at any given time, there's actually like 700,000 people that watch C-SPAN, believe it or not. All they're thinking about is addressing those folks. That's why you don't have legitimate debates really anymore. I'm a little concerned with what happens if now, you know, let's say I go talk, I'm on the floor and I go talk to somebody that's politically very different. Could be a good story, but in the base, it could be like, why is Adam talking to somebody on the far left? I do worry about now making everything a performance. If they they end up, you know, freeing the cameras, fine. I don't think it's a huge deal. I just kind of lean on the side of uh, we probably shouldn't do that. Showmanship in Congress? I don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> Congressman. Is that a thing? <laughs> so nice to talk to you this evening. No, Thank it's you a so surprise. Much. Yeah. <laughs> you bet. Spoiler alert, it's not. Thank you so much, Congressman. Nice talking to you tonight. <laughs> yeah, you... Listen, everyone, speaking of, well, I don't want to call it a show what Mother Nature is doing, but let me tell you, sinkholes and flooded roads and heavy snow, there are desperate rescues. California's deadly storms have killed at least 17 people. And it's forced tens of thousands to evacuate just so far. We're going to have more after this. There are dangerous storms battering California with relentless rain and deadly flooding. At least 17 people have now died. Thousands have been forced to evacuate and millions are under flood watch. You can see... Firefighters rescuing a 70-year-old driver stuck on a suburban street near L.A. County. And luckily, he survived. But in central California, 
a five-year-old is still missing tonight after being swept away in floodwaters. At one point, rescue teams were forced to suspend the search for him when the weather became too unsafe for even the rescuers. And the heavy rainfall in Fresno led to this rock slide with deep mud and debris forcing highways to close. I want to bring in Brian May, spokesperson for the California Governor's Office of Emergency Services. Thank you for being here tonight, Brian. I mean, when you see this, the numbers, at least 17 people have died. Do you fear this number may rise? It's it's hard to put into word just what we're seeing across the state right now. And, you know, California is certainly no stranger to danger and events. But normally when we see events in California, we see an isolated earthquake in one part of the state. We see a wildfire in one particular part of the state. But this really is impacting the entirety of, of California, especially along our coastal communities. We're seeing that the 17 deaths that you mentioned, they stretch from uh, the southern border of Mexico all the way up to the Oregon border on the north side of the state. And it's challenging, you mentioned, for our first responders as well. We did more air rescues today than we've done in the last five years of the events. And we see a lot of events in California. We're just talking about the challenging conditions and trying to get through these series of storms. We're watching sinkholes on the screen next to you and seeing where there's, as you mentioned, the entire state tonight, the entire state is under flood watch. And so what are you telling people in order to keep them safe? This is a very seemingly unpredictable and very dangerous storm in terms of what could actually impact and what could happen next. What is your message? Well, first and foremost, if you hear an evacuation order in your specific community, uh, the best thing you can do is heed that warning, get out, keep yourself, yourself safe, and also keep those first responders who don't then have to come in and looking for you. And the second thing is along those lines, just pay very close attention. Watch your local media, watch the weather reports, listen to your local authorities. These weather conditions are changing very quickly. It's hard to predict the mudslides that we're seeing. It's hard to predict when our 100-plus-year-old trees are coming down. It, it's very dangerous out. So the third message would be just stay off the roads and stay at home if you can. And let's get through these next rounds together. Such important messages. Thank you so much, Brian May, for this evening. And we're thinking of everyone out there, especially that five-year-old boy's little family. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Hello, everyone. George Santos is kicking off his term in Congress, insisting, despite his multiple lies, that he's done nothing unethical. Some of his fellow members of Congress, well, they do not agree. Now there are questions about whether he should even be entrusted with classified information. Newly sworn in Republican Congressman George Santos is maintaining this very evening that he has done, quote, nothing unethical, unquote. Now, as two Democratic lawmakers today filed a complaint against him, with the House Ethics Committee. Now, they're taking issue with the timing and, of course, the accuracy of his financial disclosures. And it comes just a day after a watchdog group asked the Federal Election Commission to investigate Santos for allegedly using campaign funds for his personal expenses. Now, on top of all of that, you get federal prosecutors in New York who are also now investigating his finances. And this appears to be just the tip of the iceberg. The Long Island Republican has been caught in a growing number of tall tales, and that's putting it nicely, facing questions about his work history, his education, the source of his wealth, whether or not he's Jewish, and even how his own mother died. Here's how GOP leaders say they're going to deal with it. 
This is something that's being handled internally. Obviously, there were concerns about uh, what we had heard. And so we're going to have to sit down and talk to him about it. We're going to sit down and talk to him about it. Hmm. Joining me now to talk about this, Democratic Congressman Pat Ryan of New York. Congressman Ryan, thank you for being here this evening. You know, for so many people, we are still sort of recovering from the entire speakership election. <laughs> However, I joined them. Yeah, you, you, you joined the recovery of all this. But of course, one of the things that was on the minds of everyone was how Congressman Santos would be treated, number one, how the, with the slim margin, McCarthy might try to either appeal to him or maybe rebuke him. How would that go? I wonder in hearing that what I can call really a tepid response, they're going to sit down and they're going to talk to him. This is a member of Congress who is accused of all of these lies. What's your reaction? I, when is it enough? Mm. I mean, when does lie upon lie upon lie become enough to actually grow a backbone and say, this is deeper than gaining 218 seats in the House. This is about trust in our democracy among the American people. And unfortunately, we just continue to see people putting power over uh, the essence of our democracy, the democracy I risk my life to defend as an army officer. So it pisses me off, frankly. I can imagine, and frankly, for the electorate, they're wondering probably the same questions you're asking, especially about that trust element. Because trust, of course, in our democracy has become imperiled in recent times, either through feigned accusations of not having a fair and free election, we do, or the idea of trying to sow discord and distrust between people to have the self-gain you're talking about. I wonder, you've written uh, to uh, McCarthy, Speaker McCarthy, today, and you called Santos a direct threat, and I'm quoting, a direct threat to national security. That certainly goes beyond the idea of misplaced trust or rejected trust. Why is he a direct threat to national security? I think it's really important the American people understand when you're elected to Congress, you essentially automatically get access to top secret national security information, a, a security clearance. That is undergirded by this idea that if, if the people know you and they elect you, you should be trusted and trusted with this highly sensitive information with lives at stake. The problem is Santos blatantly lied to the American people, yet he's going to get the same access to this highly sensitive top secret information. So I said to the speaker, I demanded, and along with other colleagues, all of whom have served in, in harm's way in, in the military or uh, intelligence agencies, we cannot let this stand. Uh, we don't even know where hundreds of thousands of dollars of campaign contributions have come from, who he might be beholden to. Until that is sorted out and he's properly vetted, it truly is a, a national security risk to allow him access to this information. You know, you said the idea of vetting, of course, um, and the idea there of an investigation pending. There's at least one Republican congressman who appears to be on the side, Dusty Johnson out of South Dakota, wanting to have an investigation. I wonder what that would look like to you. Well, there needs to be a comprehensive investigation into, frankly, how he was even allowed to be seated, given that we knew these issues had come up, that his lies had occurred, and yet he was allowed to be sworn in. I there also, was time to catch it. Yeah, we Stop knew. It. I mean, there was, this was widely reported before he was sworn in. And me and many others called, let's stop it now, not let this mistake go further. 
What I also called for specifically, though, is he should be subjected to a, a national security investigation if he does want access to this information. The normal American citizen getting a clearance goes through months of extensive background checks and vetting, um, given his lies at a minimum, if they want to keep him in the Congress, which I don't think he should be, let's at least subject him to a fulsome background check, which I don't think he would pass, frankly. Speaking of national security, of course, the big news of the day and really the past 24 hours, and frankly, several months, given the prior president, Donald Trump's handling of classified documents, there has been, as you know, reporting about classified documents of some nature being found in the private office of a former vice president who is now the president of the United States. What do you say to the fact that this has happened or this is occurring? We don't have all the information that's true. We're still waiting very much for data, for the reporting to come in from the president to talk about what really happened, if he knows. Um, what is your reaction to this issue? It's a matter of trust in many respects. It all comes back to trust, which comes back to accountability. I handle classified information every day as an Army intelligence officer. If someone were to accidentally misplace it or misstore it, what you do is you identify that problem, you own it, you address it and fix it, and you do it in a transparent way. That's what the president uh, seems to be doing. That's what everybody should do. It's the opposite of what Trump did, by the way, who tried to cover it up, lie about it, and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, that we, as you said, need to learn more. But I think the first step is taking accountability, getting, getting to the facts. Congressman, thank you so much for your insight today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, China's government denying a COVID search over there, but picture evidence tells a very different story. We've got the satellite images showing crowded crematoriums and funeral homes after this. Disturbing newly revealed images raise questions about China's COVID deaths. There are growing signs that the number of deaths are far beyond what the government is admitting to after the sudden end of its severe lockdowns just last month. Now take a look at these satellite images of a funeral home outside Beijing. In just a matter of weeks last month, it apparently became so crowded, they had to build a new parking lot for mourners. And the clues, well, they don't stop there. This video shows people lined up in the night at a crematorium in China. The Washington Post, report, Post reports that scenes like this suggest that families are now waiting for hours just to have a chance to make arrangements for a memorial service and cremation. Now, in some cases, demand is so high that the person who uploaded this video says there were even scalpers holding spaces. Joining me now is Washington Post video forensics reporter Samuel Oakford. Thank you for joining us. I mean, this is very disturbing to think about what has taken place here, Samuel. I mean, I wonder initially, seeing these images, these images that are around China that showing this increased traffic, I'm wondering what this truly signals in terms of what the current state of COVID-19 is in China. Laura, thank you for having me on. Uh, the Chinese government is very tight-lipped about how many people are dying due to the current COVID surge that's followed the, the reversal on their zero COVID policy, um, especially when it comes uh, to deaths in many major cities. Uh, we're seeing uh, totals that are very, very low, um, if uh, at all, uh, showing up. So what we wanted to do was look at satellite imagery and available open source material, including videos, to see if we could establish patterns across the country. And it, we were able to do that. We looked at 
multiple cities. Eventually, we came up with six cities where we could identify funeral homes that had more activity now in terms of vehicles, people outside, compared to the same time last year. We then took videos that uh, were taken inside of those facilities, and we could see how crowded they were. That's pretty amazing to think about just the technology you're using and the idea of using the satellite images to try to get at the heart of the matter of what China is not revealing. I just want to underscore a point that you made, Samuel, because, you know, officially, officially, just over 5,200 people in China, according to their numbers, have died since the beginning of the pandemic. And that compares in the United States to just over a million, but just 5,000, they say, have passed. But your reporting actually has a very different projection. In fact, it projects by international experts. They put the death toll at the 5,000 number per day. How do we get to that? Right. Well, our investigation was trying to see uh, what was happening in cities across the country uh, to see if there was any evidence that suggests that what experts uh, say could happen uh, wasn't right. And basically, we uh, did not uh, find that there was evidence to contradict what those experts uh, are saying. We, we don't know how many people are dying. Uh, certainly, the evidence suggests that a lot of people are dying, uh, especially the elderly who are, uh, have, may have lower levels of, of vaccination or, or boosters. This is a big problem uh, in China. And uh, when everything uh, changed overnight, effectively, uh, in early December, uh, the country as a whole is uh, undergoing what, you know, the U.S. may have gone through over the course of three years. And, of course, we're learning now that it's part of its relaxing of the COVID protocols. And we're wondering still what the, the cause of this recent surge um, most directly. But China is also allowing people to now travel again. And I'm wondering how this might pose a danger internationally. Yeah, well, uh, the, our, our investigation was mostly focused on the spread uh, the, or the possible spread and deaths within China. Um, I think we all know by now that COVID can can spread, uh, you know, when people travel. Uh, but uh, I think that the that what we were trying to get at was uh, accountability uh, here. Uh, the Chinese government uh, is basically not uh, saying and leveling with the international community as well as their own citizens about what's happening at the moment. And if you think about what we went through here in the United States with, with so many deaths uh, and so many uh, dramatic scenes here in the early days of the pandemic. Um, imagine if the government uh, was covering up uh, that those deaths and uh, we simply didn't know how many people were dying. Uh, and that's what's happening now in China. Uh, our investigation shows uh, that uh, what the government is saying is, is almost certainly uh, inaccurate. A really important story and way to get at the information when transparency certainly is not the name of the game there. Thank you so much. Thank you. So the investigations, well, they have begun. Republicans are requesting information about the classified documents found in President Joe Biden's old private office. I'll tell you about it next. Well, President Biden is breaking his silence tonight on the classified documents from his time as the vice president that were found in his private office. Here's what he said today at the summit in Mexico City. People know I take classified uh, documents and classified information seriously. When my lawyers were clearing out my office at the University of Pennsylvania, they set up an office for me, secure office in the Capitol, when I, the four years after being vice president, I was a professor at Penn. Uh, they found some documents in a box 
in a locked cabinet, or at least a closet. And as soon as they did, they realized there were several classified documents in that box. And they did what they should have done. They immediately called the archives, immediately called the archives, turned them over to the archives, and I was briefed about this discovery and surprised to learn that there were any government records that were taken there to that office. But I don't know what's in the documents. I've, my lawyers have not suggested I ask what documents they were. I've turned over the boxes. They've turned over the boxes to the archives, and we're cooperating fully, cooperating fully with the review, and which I hope will be finished soon, and uh, there will be more detail at that time. This is all coming as the new House Oversight Chairman, Republican James Comer, sent letters to the White House Counsel's Office and National Archives trying to get information on Biden's handling of classified documents. I want to bring in senior political columnist at Politico, Jonathan Martin, and senior political commentators Karen Finney and David Urban are with us as well. I'm glad to have you all here. Let me begin with you, Jonathan, because look... This is not the news or the way I think President Biden wanted to start the new year or a new Congress. I'm sure there was a bit of reveling and a bit of dysfunction of what was happening with the Republicans last week with the speaker uh, vote. But the fact of the matter is he's got to contend with this. What do you take out of it? Well, two things. One is the circumstances are different. Uh, he obviously, his his folks called when they realized they had classified uh, documents there, which was, as he pointed out, the right thing to do. But also that Biden is not his best defender. You watch that clip there. It's somewhat circuitous. And obviously, this is going to create a challenge for him, if for no other reason than just because the Republicans in Congress are going to use this to muddy the old waters. Look, uh, that's what partisans do. Um, they like to try to sort of, you know, undermine the other person's case by muddying the waters. And this gives people like Comer a chance to, to do just that. There is ammunition. And also in the <laughs> fact that, look, um, Karen, yeah, this he knew about it in November. Why did he come sooner? Well, remember, the only reason that we know about what the documents that were found at Mar-a-Lago is because Donald Trump himself couldn't keep his mouth shut. And he made the announcement thinking that he was politicizing politicizing it. Because remember, it is DOJ protocol, and as you would know, to protect the individuals who are under investigation, to protect those that investigation until it's been completed. So again, following the appropriate channels, there's no reason actually that we should know. I mean, apparently, I don't Think should know about Trump. Should know about Trump or that we should know about any Department of Justice investigation at this point. But I do want to say, I think, of course, Republicans are going to try to muddy the waters and they're going to, you know, make as much hay as this. I can't wait to hear what David has to say about it. However, <laughs> he's already giggling. I will oh, know. I know. Yeah. He's already I, I will know that. This, this is going to be easier. <laughs> but I will say, for those of us who do live in the fact-based universe... <laughs> The Republicans, many of whom had nothing to say when it was Donald Trump and hundreds of documents who are now falling all over themselves when we're talking about 10 documents uh, with regard to, to President Biden. The farther they go out on this, the question becomes, okay, so if that's how we're going to treat President Biden, is that how we're going to treat Donald Trump? Double standard part of it is going to be important. I, I, I think it's the reverse, right? If that's how we're going to treat Donald Trump, 
Why don't we treat Joe Biden? That's, that's what Republicans are saying. Like, why does Biden get the presumption of innocence, the presumption of niceness, and the presumption of, oh, this just happened to slip into his briefcase by accident, right? That these, these, these TSSCI documents were in his personal, in a file, by the way. So let's just remember what the reporting is so far, that this file says personal in it were such closely, like really personal material, like his funeral arrangements for his son, right? Letters of condolences, things that like some staffer wouldn't be schlepping around. Like that's Joe Biden's personal file. It's Mark. Oh, and, and in that file, now hold on. And in that file is TSSCI material, right? Clearly mishandled, right? So I, when, when, listen, when Trump, hold on, when Trump, when their documents found in Mar-a-Lago, I said, look, that's wrong, right? And they should be you know, that, that is just mishandling classified is a big deal. Right. Mm-hmm. So whether it's President Trump or President Biden. But there's it's a, a huge it's a problem. But David, no, you would admit there's a huge difference between having no, to no. release the under okay. being under subpoena and concerns that the Department of Justice had that they were moving or possibly. So that was um, that was it was it was it was it was different. OK. And in that Trump was it was obstructing. He was trying. No, he was trying to. There, that, that is the case. That's the that's the allegation that Trump it's was trying to obstruct. Now, listen, Biden says, well, I don't know how they got there, right? I don't know how they got there. Oh, shocking. Gambling in Costa Blanca. I've got classified documents laying oh, around. Oh, come on. Listen, they're mo- for know. months. Is, why don't we know for months, right? Why don't well, we know for months? Just, just one, just and, wait, wait, and one more thing. I want to clarify, yeah. just so I'm clear about what you're saying. Yeah. It sounds like you are intimating that the fact that it was within a file that was marked personal, absolutely. that Biden was the one to put them there. Is that yeah, what you're saying? I'm, yeah, I'm saying absolutely. You're if it's something. Well, we I'm assuming that. that I'm assuming that his staff isn't dealing with Bo Biden's funeral arrangements and letters you of condolences. Don't know that. I, I don't know that, but I'm saying that that's the most personal and intimate details of his son's death. I would think that the, the president or uh, the vice president at the time would be dealing with that, not some such staffer. The second thing is, look, how do we know there's not more stuff in, in his house in Delaware? I don't see the FBI visiting these places. This is, this is, this is what Republicans are going to say. And then finally, as you know, as a former prosecutor, you know, these, the law has to be applied the same across the board, right? So now I think Merrick Garland is a little bit of a pickle, right? A little bit of a pickle here, right? Because what does he do now? If he goes after Trump but not Biden, I mean, the, the Department of Justice might as well just, like, put a giant partisan sign up on the wall flashing neon, right? And, 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 and look, I'm just saying, Karen, Republicans now are saying there's no Hunter Biden investigation, there's no Joe Biden investigation, but yet they come and raid jackets to Mar-a-Lago in the middle of the night, Looks a little suspect. Well, let's bring Jonathan in the conversation as well on this point, because it is an interesting notion. Um, <laughs> have to? It, yes, you have to. <laughs> uh, you have to. You have to. But, I, but specifically on this point, <laughs> there has been the talking points that David's speaking about. I don't mean to be reductive about what you said, yeah. but there is a notion about the idea of, look, if and Marjorie Taylor Greene spoke about it, my, yeah. Mike Pence, the idea of if the Department of Justice does not treat Donald Trump yeah. and Joe Biden equivalently, yeah. then there's a problem. But there is also the reality that there is a divergent behavior, right? There's one who yes. is, has been fighting the idea of returning, and there's one who, according to what we know presently, and this always obviously can change, wanted to t- right. turn it in. No, I, like I said at the outset, the circumstances are, are very different between. I think David would obviously acknowledge that too. Uh, but I think David's also right that this is going to create a challenge for the Department of Justice and Merrick Garland if they do come forward with charges about the former president, uh, do you also have to take a look at the current president? I think that, that that's certainly uh, a fair question that's going to be asked. I, I would say just real fast to David, though, because he mentioned this uh, in passing about there's no Hunter Biden investigation. That was also we heard a lot of that after the raid at Mar-a-Lago. I don't understand that because my understanding is that they're actually 
there could be a Hunter Biden there investigation. Right. The the U.S. Attorney's Office, I think, in Delaware is still looking at this. So uh, we might not know about all the details about it, but I think that's still an ongoing question. So I, I don't quite get why there's this sort of idea that, that, that you know Hunter Biden is being somehow left alone. I, he's still facing some jeopardy. You know, John, there, right? John, I'm just saying this is what, this is what you know, if something if, if something You're happens here, right, that, right? I'm saying if something happens right. here, not there, right? If there's a prosecution of Donald Trump and not Joe Biden, right, right. right there, it starts to look a lot, lot well, well, worse okay, and worse for Merrick Garland. There is a difference between the law and politics. So legally, right. one of the things we know is that in both instances, a process and a procedure has been followed whereby the documents are being reviewed to determine yeah. the level of secrecy and potential harm to national security. Then also we know that Merrick Garland has referred the, the Biden uh, case to a... Um, Trump appointed. Trump yes, appointed, right? Similarly, the, the, the Trump documents have also been, uh, you know, moved to a particular process. So... Again, we can play politics and muddy the waters, but in, and yes, it does put Merrick Garland in an already tough position, in a tougher position. But again, I think it's fair to say he's not going to take any action until both of those processes have been completed and we know what the results are. It also seems, though, though, all of you are describing the idea of, in in a word or two or three, tit for tat. And sure. it's a perpetual cycle at that point because you're saying, well, in order for this to happen, it has to have this happen and these reaction and reactions happening. Is there an end game ultimately if you are the Republicans and you have the majority in the House yeah, is, and yeah. you've got, of course, committee chair? What what is the end yeah, game? Yeah, is it to frustrate? Right? They're oversight, right? This is what we heard. You know, this is what we heard going into this Congress, right? There's going to be aggressive oversight of the weaponization of the Department of Justice. That's the view. That's of the just Republican. one committee. No, though. no, but that's the view of the Republican side of the aisle, right? Jim Jordan and many others feel that there's the Department of Justice has been weaponized and, and they're going to investigate it. Right. And this is all going to get fleshed out. And so if you're Merrick Garland today, you're saying this is not another great fact pattern for me to go up to the hill and try to explain more real fast here. One thing all of us can agree on is that Merrick Garland's future is looking very different than it appeared five years ago when he was posed to be on the Supreme Court. Yes. Uh, uh, Justice Garland <laughs> would be having a much more sedate, mm-hmm. scholarly life surrounded by clerks and the law and uh, then the sort of political hothouse that he is going to find himself in here for the next two years. Oh, no, they're under the microscope, too. No, no, no. They're, the Supreme Court is not out of the water at all on that point. But I do take your point. Karen, give you the last word. <laughs> no, I agree. Look, again, I think we have every indication that Merrick Garland is going to follow the law to the letter of the law. Oh, that's well. There, what a that's well, a hell of a concise. last word. We'll I know see, she's very optimistic. Yeah. No, well, we'll see. I like the glass half full, but it is a, a not a good swiftly start. And of course, the American people, national security is an issue. The idea that classified documents are out there, I'm still wondering about who the custodian of records is that would be responsible for figuring out what's out, what's outstanding, and how to get it back. That's all part of the conversation as well. That's the next story. I mean, I've got some good reporters at the table. More in a minute, everyone on that very important point that I've just said. Also, do you worry about the impact that social media is having on our society? Yes, that's rhetorical. Well, so does one school district, and tonight they're pointing the finger at big tech. They're filing a lawsuit against some of the most popular social media platforms claiming that they have a negative impact on their students' mental health. We're going to talk about what tech companies are and are not responsible for next. 
Well, it's unusual and might be unprecedented. The Seattle Public School District is suing some of the biggest names in social media. The owners of Facebook and Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, and YouTube. The district claims those platforms have a negative impact on students' mental health, getting in the way of schools being able to fulfill their educational mission. Meta, which owns Facebook as well as Instagram, tells CNN in a statement that it continues to pour resources into ensuring its young users are safe online with more than 30 tools to support teens and families. Now, other companies did not immediately respond to CNN's requests for comment. Dean Kawamoto is an attorney representing Seattle Public Schools, along with the school district in the neighboring city of Kent, Washington, which joined the complaint. And he joins me now. Dean, good to have you tonight. A lot of people are talking about this lawsuit and um, especially about the idea of these platforms impeding the school's ability to, in the quote, fulfill its educational mission. Tell me about this particular avenue as a way to go at these companies? Well, good evening, Laura. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I I really appreciate it. You know, if you wanted to summarize this lawsuit, there is a mental health crisis among kids caused by social media companies. And these lawsuits aim to force social media companies to stop preying on kids and help schools pay for the mental health services that students now need because of the actions of these social media companies. So the the technical legal claim is it's a public nuisance lawsuit, but the goal is abatement and it's twofold. It's number one, to change the behavior of the defendants. And it's also to get the resources you need to abate the nuisance. In this case, you know, the mental health issues that are confronting both the Seattle Public Schools and the Kent School District. And in terms of abatement, if this is a successful lawsuit, I mean, is that what the money would go to if you were to win this claim? Yes. That is certainly the goal. When you're looking at this, and of course, the word that comes to mind and um, part of the criticism, obviously, and, and more broadly, when it's directed towards social media companies, their retort is often about on whom the onus falls. Whose responsibility is it to monitor the use by a particular person of these particular platforms? And they have said in a statement that They have developed more than 30 tools to support teens and families, including supervision tools that let parents limit the amount of time their teens spend on Instagram and age verification technology that helps teens have age-appropriate experiences. And other platforms, of course, have also put out safeguards to children. I wonder, with this lawsuit, based on that statement, why are those tools insufficient? Well, I think what the Seattle Public Schools and the Kent School District would say is that based on the results and the experience in their schools, these tools are not adequate. They are not doing enough. You know, this lawsuit is targeting the algorithms, you know, and and essentially how the social media platforms design and operate and market their platforms, particularly to to children. And these algorithms used by the social media companies push harmful content to children and are designed to hook kids and keep them on the platforms. I mean, these are the allegations in in their complaints, and and that's the focus of this lawsuit. And I understand that companies like to say it's up to parents to protect kids from social media, but parents don't control the algorithms that are pushing the harmful material to kids, and it's these algorithms and how the social media companies have designed and operate their platforms that's causing these problems. 
I can't help but draw an analogy in my mind of the idea of um, big tobacco, as it's sometimes th thought of as it relates to what's pushed upon a child or not, totally not an algorithm, but at one point it was the advertising, the targeted campaigns to try to envelop um, a new consumer base. And I wonder, even with the issue of what a parent's responsibility is to control their child's access, either on their phones, their what they're searching, et cetera, it almost sounds like even with the best intentions and best oversight of a parent, the lawsuit seems to suggest that the algorithms or the influence that these platforms wield really overpowers that. Is that part of the premise? I think that's absolutely right. I think it's it's unfair and problematic to put the onus on parents and families that are out there, quite frankly, trying to put out as many brush fires as they can and you know avoid liability um, and responsibility for the parent, for the companies that are making these products that are causing, quite frankly, causing this fire. So, so why I, I completely this, agree with you. So why, excuse me, I didn't interrupt you. What, what, why is this coming then from, if it's the idea of a, the parents being overwhelmed, why is this coming from the schools as opposed to, say, a class action suit by conglomerate of parents? Why is the school the one and the district the one pursuing this? Because the impacts of social media and the adverse consequences that are being, you know, caused or, or inflicted on children are directly impacting the school's ability to educate their kids. Schools are constantly dealing with mental health issues. They are one of the primary providers of mental health services to youth. And the demand is is so vast that it is outstripping existing resources. And that means that schools have to divert resources away to address this problem. So money that would go to libraries, science labs, math teachers, you know, sports teams has to go instead to dealing and providing support to these kids that are in crisis. Are there rules that the school could possibly enact to try to abate even without this lawsuit? Or is that, the, is that part of the conversations ahead? I mean, I think that's part of the conversations ahead, but, you know, it, it is, I mean, schools are doing what they can, but it, you know, you, you mentioned sort of being overwhelmed. I mean, I think that is certainly an analogy that applies to schools. And so, you know, schools don't control the algorithms. They don't control the platforms. They don't control the programs. And that is, that's the problem. Really fascinating. We're going to follow this litigation. Thank you for joining and helping to better explain the premise of this. Really important. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. I really appreciate being here on your show. Thank you, Dean. Well, up next, a little more about what's happening, because you may recall Donald Trump's longtime money man. Well, Alan Weisselberg is heading to jail for five months. He was sentenced today for his role in a decade-long tax fraud scheme. Alan Weisselberg turned state's witness against the Trump organization, but the judge said that had he not already promised a five-month sentence, he would have issued a stiffer one. This after hearing the evidence that came in at trial. Weisselberg was the former president's chief financial officer, and he admitted he should have paid taxes on off-the-books compensation, totaling roughly $200 uh, in one year, $200,000 in one year. That included a luxury Manhattan apartment, two Mercedes-Benz leases, and private school tuition for his grandchildren. 
Now, five months is obviously by no means the longest sentence handed down to a member of Trump's universe. But unlike several Trump associates sentenced over the past few years, Weisselberg has no chance of a pardon from the former president. And it's worth noting that Weisselberg will be sent to the notorious Rikers Island jail in New York. Not exactly club fed. Just ahead, everyone, police in Massachusetts find evidence at a trash processing facility that they think might be linked to the disappearance of a mother of three. We'll have the very latest on that case after the break. Now, tonight, police are still looking for the missing Massachusetts mother, Anna Walsh. They've turned up evidence that they think may be linked to her disappearance. Sources are saying investigators found a hacksaw, a torn-up cloth material, and what may be bloodstains while searching through trash at a garbage transfer station. Co-workers reported Walsh, a mother of three young kids, missing on January 4th. Now, her husband, Brian, told police that he last saw her on New Year's Day. He's being held on a charge of misleading a police investigation. Sources allege investigators also discovered that he searched the Internet for information on dismemberment and, quote, how to dispose of a 115-pound woman's body, unquote. Let's talk about it now with Chris Swecker, former FBI assistant director for the Criminal Investigative Division, and CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson. Gentlemen, it's good to see you, but what a case this is becoming. Unbelievable, really. I want to begin here with you, Chris, because as I just told everyone, I mean, the, the investigators... They have found a, and they've searched a trash facility. They found hacksaw, torn up cloth material, what appears to be blood stains. What is the significance of having these searches be completed and where they have been completed? Yeah, I mean, the, tr- tracking this guy is like tracking a bleeding elephant in the snow. I mean, he's leaving tools, uh, clues and signs everywhere. I mean, he... He uh, gave a very obvious uh, false story to the police about when his wife uh, went, uh, supposedly went to, to uh, Washington, uh, really in order to delay the investigation and delay reporting her missing. He, you know, he, he goes to Home Depot, which is someplace that he said he, well, he is during a time period when he said he never left the house, and he buys $400 worth of, or over $400 worth of cleaning equipment. And then he, yet he leaves a bloody knife in the basement and a huge blood spot in the basement. And obviously, the, the investigators are tracking some of his cell phone activities. They're tracking, they may well have been tracking his car. For all we know, he may have been wearing a monitor. He was awaiting sentencing, uh, you know, as he, uh, as he had an art fraud case, mm-hmm. uh, federal case pending, and it was awaiting sentencing there and wasn't supposed to even leave the house. So the police and investigators are obviously following some very, you know, some very uh, reliable information because it led them directly to, uh, to some very, you know, very damning evidence. Yeah. And Joey, on that point about the ankle, ankle bracelet, of course, being monitored, but also the behavior. I mean, you are a defense attorney in part and, and a tremendous lawyer. And thinking about this, this suspicious behavior This does not look good for the accused, even when there is a presumption of innocence. I wonder how you evaluate all that has come out in the press already. 
Yeah, Laura, good evening to you. It's really a challenge, I believe, for what ultimately I think they're building up to be, and I certainly hope not, and people are holding out hope that potentially she's still alive. Uh, certainly she's loved and has these precious little boys, ages two, four, and six, uh, but they are, that is, investigators and prosecutors building this up to be a murder case uh, in the event it comes to that, and we could see that through what they're tracking, and the challenges are many. Number one, as you know, Laura, we constantly advises defense attorneys clients not to speak that upsets a lot of people in this instance you heard in court his defense attorney saying he was speaking however the things he was telling investigators were misleading. Why is that relevant? Because it goes to the issue of consciousness of guilt. If you're going to cooperate with authorities, right, you're going to cooperate, the hope would be that you would give credible information. When you give information which is untrue with respect to my wife leaving for a ride share, when they do a cell phone triangulation to the home, which shows she didn't leave, when you give the indication, right, and otherwise it was, uh, you know, to the police that, uh, you know, you know that your wife was leaving for Washington, et cetera, and that proves not to be the case, there are really significant challenges and issues. You match that with all the other evidence, seemingly the blood, et cetera, the fact that what the you know, indications are that he went to Home Depot, and it just really tells a story. Now, last point, Lauren, that's this. This is all circumstantial evidence, to be clear, but as you know from the outstanding prosecutor you were, circumstantial evidence is evidence, right? People don't generally commit crimes in the light of day where everyone can see them and so ultimately you go before a jury if it comes to that you lay out all the pieces of the puzzle and boy does it look damning at this point with respect to the defense having to defend him which will from a misleading case right which he's charged with now five hundred thousand dollars bail to eventually i think uh, a murder case well Gentlemen, stick around because we still have more to talk about with you tonight. And also just you, you did mention, both of you mentioned this is a mother. And so she they have three children, ages two, four and six. And they apparently are currently in the custody of the Massachusetts Department of Children and Families. And so what will happen to these children, um, we will follow as well. Chris, Joey, stay with me because up next, Virginia police say the mother of a six-year-old boy could face charges after her son allegedly shot a teacher at school. Yes, a six-year-old. The firearm was purchased by his mom. The police chief in Newport News, Virginia, says that it's certainly a possibility that the mother of a six-year-old could face charges after that child allegedly shot a teacher at school on Friday. Investigators allege the boy took the firearm from home and brought it in school in his backpack, then allegedly opened fire on the teacher who was shot in the chest through her hand. Now, she is in stable condition. Back with us, Chris Swecker and Joey Jackson. I mean, it's hard to wrap your mind around this, gentlemen. Chris, a six-year-old having engaged in this behavior, allegedly, he was able to get the gun from home put in a backpack, apparently conceal and carry at some point throughout the day, and then shoot his teacher, allegedly. I wonder, the idea of a six-year-old being capable of a premeditated shooting and killing, what is your thought? Yeah, my background is as a, was a state prosecutor before I went in the FBI, and I, it's, I, I, I see a lot of difficulties in any type of prosecution here, and I think it's, I think it's a, a pretty well a foregone conclusion that, that won't happen. Too young, 
unable to participate, you know, meet the, 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 the definition of incompetent or competency in that he can't participate in his defense. He wouldn't understand the nature and extent of the charges against him. I think there's other remedies here, and I think that that uh, that will be pursued. But the parents, I mean, I, I think the parents are going to face the bar of justice. Uh, they're gathering the facts now. I think there's a misdemeanor charge in Virginia that can be used for failing to, to safeguard a gun. And I think there may even be some sort of uh, criminal gross negligence type charge that, that might be applied here. So, I, you know, there's there's still some investigating going on, but I expect to see charges here. Uh, you know, I think there's a, the, the, the parents stand a pretty good chance of having charges filed. Let's put it that way. Before I get to you, Joanne, that I want to follow up with you on that, Chris. What do you think the other avenues of accountability would be for a child like this? I think it would be more around uh, some sort of counseling environment, sort of some sort of treatment environment. Uh, you know, question you query whether the child would stay with the parent with the mother. I think it, it was a mother, not a not a set of parents. And I, you know, I just don't see any possibility of any type of criminal accountability here. They, they, there's no place to hold the child uh, in, in the Virginia system. And I think there, you know, really, it's hard to imagine the, the type of in, that a child would form with that type of intent that they could be held criminally culpable. It's sad to think about the fact that this is where we are right now, Joey. But as to, the, as to the mother in particular, Joey, the idea that there is the very real possibility, I'm paraphrasing the law enforcement on that point, what potentially might she be held to account for and what could those charges be? Yeah, you know, Laura, as we know, there's a law in Virginia that speaks to the issue of not recklessly leaving a weapon available so that it could be uh, used or otherwise possessed by someone 14 or under. Uh, but as Chris noted, it's simply a misdemeanor. What does that mean? It means that it's only punishable by a year. Uh, it's classified in Virginia, apparently class one, two, three, four. And so I think what prosecutors will do here, lawyers, they'll not only look to utilize that statute, but to look for other creative ways to hold right the mother accountable. They will examine, of course, how reckless was she? How did the gun get into the hands of the child? How did it get outside the home? How did it get into the child's backpack? How was it transported to the school and how was that permitted? And I also think that the law itself that talks about the misdemeanor or simply for children who possess and could endanger others. In this instance, it was far more significant. So I'm looking to see what other statutes prosecutors would apply that are more serious than that, potentially felony level, such that there's accountability because you could certainly foresee, Laura, if a child gets a gun like this, that terrible things like this could happen. Thank goodness the teacher is alive. And, and you are right to think about the idea of the deterrence aspect of laws and prosecution as not to set an example for the sake of trying to um, target and condemn one, but to prevent from happening anything else. And Chris, this could have been far worse. I mean, an idea of a gun at school is a horror that we live too often in this country. And the teacher, thank goodness that she is stable, Abby's Werner, is being praised really for her response because even after she was shot, in the chest, through her own hand, presumably through a defensive, you know, trying to stop what was happening, she made sure that all of her students got out of that classroom safely. Um, and I wonder what you're thought of in terms of her being hailed at this point a hero. Absolutely. I mean, her actions were, were, were heroic in every sense of the word. 
she did, she took she looked to the kids first, got them out despite the fact that she was gravely wounded, mm. and and that that was her that was her first and only thought, you know. And to look back too on on the on the gun itself, not only was the gun in the hands of the child, but it was racked and ready, and loaded, fully loaded. It's you know most nine millimeters you have to rack the gun, and uh, it's hard to believe that a six year old child would know how to do that, to have that thing ready to go in, in the backpack. Mm. I didn't mean to deviate from your thought there because, and I don't want to take away from it, that, that teacher is an absolute hero. And every, every parent in that, uh, parent of every child in that class ought to be very, very grateful towards her for her actions. Jo- Chris, I'm th- glad you had that and actually raised the point you just did because, Joey, that does add and buttress the argument you were making about what would be considered and thought of about the idea of how would a child be prepared and why the mother may be looked at criminally in this particular instance. That, that adds to those questions that law enforcement will surely be asking. Yeah, there's no question about that, Laura. And I think you really have to look to when you're examining this from a prosecution's perspective. You know, as you know, there's the saying in law that the risk perceived is the duty defined. What does that mean in English? Certainly, it's a risk in the event that you leave a gun, right, that a child can get a hold of. That's the risk. You certainly would perceive a duty to safeguard that weapon. And you know that it would be foreseeable that someone could be significantly injured. Certainly, it's horrific that we would foresee this. This, right? This is just really uh, incredible when we talk about a six-year-old who can get a gun into the school and then use it uh, against the teacher. And so I think to your point that you raised in your question, I think prosecutors will be looking at that horrific risk, will be looking at the inability of the parent to safeguard the weapon, and will be looking at the net effect and the result of that, taking it full circle and ending on this about the deterrence that you noted. You have to deter other people and other parents and show that you have to be more careful. These things can happen. They shouldn't happen. And I think prosecutors will be vested in prosecuting this case really to demonstrate that we're taking it seriously. We're going to look closely at it and we're going to find a parent accountable who would permit and allow this to occur. Chris, Joey, thank you so much. And I know that we are all thinking about the impact on the other children in that classroom and how this is impacting them as well. Thank you both. Up next, rap legend Dr. Dre in a legal spat with controversial Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. So what's it all about? We'll take a look or a listen next. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene in a spat with rap legend Dr. Dre after his lawyer sent her a cease and desist letter for using his beat from the 2001 song Still Dre in her Twitter video. Now Twitter disabled her post, but for context, just for context, here's a piece. Well, Marjorie Taylor Greene was celebrating Kevin McCarthy's speakership victory after, of course, 15 rounds of votes. And in response, Dr. Dre said, quote, I don't license my music to politicians, especially someone as divisive and hateful as this one. Now, then Greene put out this response, quote, while I appreciate the creative chord progression, I would never play your words of violence against women and police officers and your glorification of the thug life and drugs. Jonathan Martin, wow. Karen Finney, and David Urban are back with me, but she did play the music. But she sampled but she it. Did. Listen, she just sampled it. She was an artist. These guys, 
Everybody she samples. was an artist. Everybody samples everybody. She, she's she made, an she's, artist? She was made, she's a creator. She's on social media. No, no. She's sampled as yeah, artists. She's sampled about, about politics today, by the way. <laughs> I mean, but it's, it's perfect, right? Because the, the beef, uh, if you will, about folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene is that they are more performance artists than politicians. <laughs> They're not rolling their sleeves up in committee work and trying to bring back the bacon from Ooh. their districts. They're, they're trying to create an identity and a brand for themselves. And so David stumbled upon a great insight here. <laughs> Gold, that's what happens. What she, when you get close to midnight, that's what happens. Boom. Oh, she's an artist. But Karen, she's what's the artist. brand she's trying to promote, though? Uh, that I cannot speak to. I will leave that to David. And actually, I'm, I would imagine it is probably a staffer who has an excellent taste in music, I have to actually say, to use that. But, you know, when we talk about branding for music, this happens all the time. Every, people get in trouble. We use, they use, we use music in rallies that we're not supposed to use, that we're supposed to get permission. In this instance, though, I mean, for the musicians, as you saw in Dre's statement, because, you know, I call him Dre because at this hour. He's Dre. Yeah, yeah, me and Dre. He's still, well, he's still Dre. He's still Dre, ain't he? <laughs> yeah, he's still Dre. See what I did? Yeah, I love it. But, you know, musicians and artists don't want to be associated from, from with certain brands. And as he said, I don't do politicians, so. Yeah, but to, to, to MTG's point, it was just the courts. It was the piano. There was no... There was no words. There was but no. It was right? a, but it was a loop, and a loop. it was yeah, long but it, enough yeah. that they should have gotten. No. But this is a long-standing. This is a long-standing story, though, yeah. in American politics, because there's always the, yes. the, the, these. It happens uh, everywhere. Everywhere. Every campaign, invariably, there will be a cease and desist letter and/or statement from somebody in music, whether it's Republican or Democrat, to a candidate who's Trump using their. Trump experienced it a great deal. Yes, a lot. Yes, yes. Because, because Trump was obviously very controversial. Uh, but this happens every campaign. This is not uh, totally totally. New. I think what is new here is the fact that this is not even over playing the song on a rally. It's over just the sample on a on a, a on social, social media. media. Exactly. Right. Right. That that's where I think it becomes more problematic. Right. Trump actually, interestingly enough, I believe that is a record number of artists from across the spectrum that he got himself in trouble with. I've, I've heard key, I've heard most of those songs, by the way. But that's the key word here, though, spectrum. Because look at just the list of people that we're talking about. If you're promoting the music. All of these people, you're talking about someone with either a very eclectic playlist or you're trying to reach a very broad audience and hoping to associate that with the favorability of that musician, which is why they don't want it. Yeah, Have you ever been to a Trump rally and heard the the playlists? Eclectic is exactly what it is. Well, and Trump saw himself as an artist of sorts. One of my favorite stories uh, from the Trump era, and we actually have this in our book, is Trump and Elton John. So when Trump was going to campaign in North Dakota for Kevin Kramer, now senator in 2018, on the way there, he asked then-Congressman Kramer, he said, what did Elton draw at the Fargo Dome? Because Trump, as David knows, was determined to outdraw Sir Elton at every 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 mid-sized venue they went to. He wanted to know what Sir Elton's gate was because he wanted to get more. Trump wasn't a politician in that sense. He was more of a a performer, an artist, exactly. If if you've been to rally, that's what it was. Well, I'll tell you what. um, If that was the question that Marjorie Taylor Greene asked, I think the answer is only... Well, a Super Bowl. So I'm just saying that I'm not going to be able to be <laughs> last, easily last year's, right? yeah. Last year's Super Bowl, everyone. And, of course, we're just a, a couple weeks away from the next one. Thank you, everyone, and thank you to our panel sticking with me. And I'm amazed by all the Dr. Dre knowledge at this panel. I'm, I'm in pretty favor amazing, of it. Right? We're well, listen, it's classic rock now, to it, be honest, right? It's, it's, not, it's classic pretty old rock for our generation, right? We're ending that it's not classic <laughs> rock. But thank you, everyone, for watching. Our, our coverage continues. <laughs> <laughs>
We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.